All right, so today we had an opportunity to uh, look at the law of God in a more in-depth way. And I know that's not always exciting to think about the law of God. Uh, And all of us have sort of different tendencies or different reactions towards the law, don't we? I want you to imagine for a moment a scene. You're walking in a beautiful park, and you come up to a wonderfully manicured lawn. And as you walk up to this lawn, you see a little sign, don't walk on the grass. All right, what's your gut reaction? I know some of you in here are the people who are going to just step your foot on the grass. It said not to, so you're going to put your foot on the grass, right? So, and then others of you wouldn't dream of walking on the grass. It said not to, right? And in fact, you're kind of irritated that all these other people are walking on the grass and nothing is happening to them. I mean, where are the grass police after all, right? So I think those of you who uh, wanted to just run out there onto the grass, you're the antinomians. So antinomian is just this big kind of fancy word that means against the law. You're the ones who want to throw off the rules, throw off the law. Of course, you don't actually really want to throw off the law. You really just want the law to revolve around you and your particular situation, right? (laughs) Try eating a piece of cake in front of your antinomian teenager. Suddenly, that teenager is going to be all about the law, aren't they? So none of us are really against all laws. Um, And then those of you who wouldn't dream of walking on the grass, you're the legalists. And right now, you're kind of cheering in your heart, aren't you? Because I'm going after the antinomians. And you're thinking, preach it, girl. You know, go after those antinomians. They're the bad guys. They have no respect for the law. Uh, But my legalist sisters, I'm coming for you too. (laughs) Because truly, you legalists, you also don't love the law. What you really love is control and order. And you want to use the law and interpret the law to get the control and order that you crave. So none of us get off the hook, do we? We're either the antinomians or we're the legalists, and none of us have a right relationship um, to the law. So none of us win. It's helpful for us, though, to kind of step back and think about what is my gut reaction towards the law, towards rules? How do I react? And of course, it gets more complicated because depending on the particular situation, we might act a little bit differently. But just to kind of know our basic tendency to the law is helpful. And then we not only have kind of our own basic view towards the law, but then society is also giving us messages about the law. And sometimes society's messages are like swinging way over towards the side of legalism, and there's lots of legalist messages about the law, and then it's swinging way over to the antinomian side. Uh, And I think today we're much more on that side of the antinomian with the messages that we're receiving uh, from our culture. And I think there are two prominent messages that our culture is telling us about the law. Uh, The first is this, true freedom can only be experienced without rules. And then the second one, love doesn't have any rules. 
I think teenagers are especially vulnerable to these messages. And like all of Satan's lies, there's kind of this little kernel of truth in that message. Because rules for the sake of rules really do curb freedom, and they really are unloving. But that doesn't mean that all rules are bad, that all rules are against freedom, or that all rules are unloving. And once we grow up and we leave home, we quickly learn that life without rules doesn't work, does it? I mean, think of playing a board game. What's the first thing we all do when we get a new board game? Maybe you got some for Christmas. We got some in our house. The first thing we do is we pull out the rules, we read the rules, and we make sure everybody understands them. Because we know that when you try to play a board game without everybody correctly understanding the rules, it turns out to be a mess. It's chaos. In fact, usually when you play the board game for the first time, you have to like have interpretation of the rules. And sometimes you have to have house rules because the rules really weren't as spelled out as uh, well as they needed to be. And also, we know that relationships also have rules, even if those rules are unspoken. And usually find out what those rules are when you break uh, one of the rules in a relationship. So the law actually frees us to live as we were intended to live. I mean, think of teenagers today who have accepted those antinomian messages that society has told us about uh, freedom has no rules and love has no rules. Those teenagers, we're seeing just, um, I read articles about this periodically, they're experiencing unprecedented levels of anxiety. And I think part of the reason they're experiencing so much anxiety is because living life on your own terms and coming up with all the rules yourself, it's exhausting and it's also scary and unpredictable. Um, So God in his goodness has given us laws to live by. But he's done more than that because God didn't want to just give us laws for our society or for our relationships with one another, but God wanted more than that. He wanted to be in a relationship with us. He wanted to be in a relationship with his people. And the first four commandments that we studied this this morning are all about how God's people can be in a relationship with him. They show God's people how to be in a relationship with him. So let me repeat that. The first four commandments show the people how to have a relationship with the living God. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our morning thinking about. I want you to realize how different the God that the the Israelites encountered in Exodus 19 and 20 was from the idols that they were used to encountering um, when they were in Egypt. This God was very different. The idols that they knew of in Egypt didn't want any kind of a relationship with them. They're, they're, uh, interactions with the idols in Egypt, it's all transactional. And this was true for all the people in the ancient 
uh, Near East. It's just a transactional relationship. You bring the idol something, an offering, food, or, or whatever. You bring it to the idol, and then the idol does something for you. He brings rain for your crops, or he makes your wife fruitful so you can have more children. So it's just this transactional relationship. There is nothing deeper or more intimate. There are no rules or laws that govern the relationship because it wasn't necessary. It was just very simple. Bring the idol something, he does something for you or takes care of you. But God was going to be different. This God that the people encountered in Exodus 19 and 20, he wanted an intimate, close relationship with the people. He wanted to be known by the people, and he wanted to know them. And the laws were going to give the people a way of being in a relationship with this living God. So the intent of the law was relationship. Of course, by the time we get to Exodus 20, a lot has already happened in our Bibles. In fact, we have numerous stories of God being in relationship with people. I mean, if we just went around, we could like name them, couldn't we? He's been in relationship with Noah. He's been in relationship with Abraham. He's been in relationship with Joseph, now Moses. So many people and so many relationships. But what's different about God's relationship uh, with those people is he was always in relationship with individuals. And now, starting in Exodus 20, God is going to be in relationship with a whole group of people. Uh, When he was in relationship with those individuals, he communicated directly to them, whether it was through audible speech, it was through an angel, um, it was through a dream. You know, he communicated directly to the people he was in relationship with. But now that he's going to be in relationship with the whole people, that holy nation that we saw in Exodus 19, he needs to write down laws which are going to govern his relationship with the nation of Israel. And so he gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a summary of the entire Old Testament moral law. We're going to get a whole lot more about the Ten Commandments as we push further on into Exodus. And if you were to move on and read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you would get even more explanation fleshing out of the Ten Commandments. But right here in these few little verses, we have the summary of the entire Old Testament moral law. And so often, we pull the Ten Commandments out of context, don't we? I'm so thankful that when we're looking at the Ten Commandments these next two weeks, we are doing it in the context of this Bible study where we have already studied in depth the first 19 chapters of Exodus because we need to really put the commandments in their proper context. Um, And I'm sure that when you read Exodus 20, verse 2, you were able, based on your study of the first 19 verses, to really put this in context. So let me read um, uh, Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, when you read those verses, you probably were thinking back to everything that God had done for his people. 
for all the plagues that he had visited on Egypt, for the Passover, for bringing the people out to the Red Sea, for how he helped them to cross the Red Sea and took care of their enemy, the Egyptians, providing manna. I mean, we could just go on and on. All the different things that God has done to rescue his people, to bring them out of slavery, and to bring them to this point. God is reminding them here of everything he's done for them. And now he wants to be in a relationship with them. You know, they were slaves of the wicked king Pharaoh. Now they are going to be servants of the best king ever, God Almighty. And he wants to have a relationship with them. And so they come And he's going to give them some commands because they knew all about idols. Back in Egypt, their life had been surrounded by idols. They know how to relate to idols. They know how to serve idols. But they do not know how to serve the one true God. So he needs to give them some laws about how to serve the one true God. And so he gives them the first commandment. The first commandment lets them know what kind of a God they're going to be in relationship with. You shall have no other gods before me, it reads. They're going to be in relationship with the one true living God. This is not one God among many. He is the only God. And they are reminded of that in the first commandment. The second two commandments show the people how to have a relationship with this God. In essence, how to worship God. Because whenever you're in a relationship with God, it entails worship. It's all about worship. So the next two commandments are showing the people how they ought to go about worshiping God. Um, And they come negatively to us. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the second and third commandments demonstrate how the people are to worship. And then the fourth commandment tells the people the benefits of being in a relationship with God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right? The Sabbath day is a blessing of their relationship with God. And we saw this back in chapter 16 when God is telling Moses all about the manna and how the people are to gather the manna, um, he says that he was giving the people the Sabbath. That can be found in Exodus 16, 29, right? The Sabbath was a gift for the people. It was a gift for people who had been in slavery their whole lives, people who had never known a day off, but had always had to toil for somebody else. And here's this gift. You can have rest because I'm going to provide for you. That's what God's saying. And I'm going to provide for you abundantly. So that day of rest is reminding them of God's promised provision for them. I mean, isn't this amazing? We come to Exodus 20, God has not only delivered his people, but now he's brought them to this point. He wants to be in relationship with them. He tells them how to be in relationship with them. It's just, it's like, this is one of the pinnacles of Exodus. It's incredible. 
And it's too good to be true, isn't it? (laughs) Of course, we all know this because we know the rest of the story. It is too good to be true. It's too good to be true for a people here with sinful hearts. I mean, Moses, we're going to see, is barely up on the mountain with God for just a, a short period of time. And already the people are breaking the second commandment. They're coming to Aaron and saying, make us a carved image. Make us an image. Make us a God that we can bow down to who's going to deliver us and carry us out of here. So they have completely forgotten everything God told them. And they're already breaking the second commandment with the golden calf. We're going to come to that story all too soon in Exodus chapter 32. And then if uh, we were to read on, and of course you guys know the story, it's just a downhill spiral from there in the Old Testament, isn't it, of law-breaking story. After law-breaking story, God continues to rescue and provide and care for his people. They continue to turn their back on him and break the law. Uh, We have stories of antinomians who are breaking God's law, and we have stories of legalists who are breaking God's law. I mean, legalists, you just think of the wicked priests, antinomians, we think of the wicked kings, we think of the Pharisees and tax collectors, everybody is breaking the law of God. Um, And unfortunately, that's what we have until we have Jesus arriving in the New Testament. And thankfully, ladies, you and I, we are on the other side of the cross, Jesus has already come for us. He's come for us lawbreakers. He died on the cross to pay for all of God's laws that we have broken. He died on the cross for those of us in here who are antinomians and those of us in here who are legalists. He paid the price for those sins that we have committed. And not only that, but Jesus perfectly kept the law that we were unable to keep. And he kept it on our behalf because God knew even if we were forgiven, we still wouldn't be able to keep the law. And then more than that, we were given new hearts, hearts in which now we're able to keep the law. And even more than that, we were given the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who helps us and enables us to keep the law of God. Those are the gifts and the treasures we have, those of us who have trusted in Christ on this side of the cross. We have that. And we know that these commandments that we have in Exodus 20 are still valid for us today, don't we? Because Jesus took all of those 10 commandments and he summarized them for us in just two. He took the first four commandments and summarized them this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. That's a summary of the first four commandments that we have here in Exodus 20. So we are empowered through the Holy Spirit to keep the laws that we see here in Exodus 20. That is God's good gift to us. 
So in the time that we have remaining, I want us to look at the four commandments that we have, and I want us to think about what do they mean for us today, and how do they apply to us? Now, I think our Bible study did actually a pretty good job of walking us through the four commandments and having us do that. And so this is just going to be a little bit more to push us um, a little further in that area. And I'm going to ask five different questions. And again, this is going to be pretty, just like a cursory overview. Uh, But you might want to write down these five questions because they're similar to the ones that we were asked in our Bible study, but they might be helpful as you meditate on your own on these four commandments. So the five questions are this. What is meant by this commandment for us today? How did Jesus fulfill the commandment? Why do we break the commandment? How do we break the commandment? And what steps can we take to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in keeping this commandment? So I'll just go ahead and repeat those for us. (laughs) Okay, so first, what is meant by the commandment today? How did Jesus fulfill the commandment? Why do we break the commandment? That's really that question when she talked to us about what's the lie that we're believing, like why are we tempted to break the commandment? How do we break the commandment? And what steps can we take as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in keeping the commandment? Okay, so the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What's meant by this commandment? Well, remember earlier, I said that this is how we demonstrate that we are exclusively in relationship with the one true God. He is the only object of our worship. So when we are are obeying this commandment, we're using our thoughts, our words, and our actions to show that God is the only one that we worship. This also just naturally means that we're rejecting false gods or idols. We are orienting our lives around God alone. All right, how did Jesus fulfill this commandment? Well, he first fulfilled it when he rejected all those temptations that uh, Satan offered him in the desert, right? He was rejecting all the false gods and saying, no, I am oriented towards my father. Um, And then he continued to do this as he submitted himself to his father's will even to the point that it meant death on a cross. So he fully submitted himself to his father and his father's will. All right, why do we break the commandment? We break the commandment because we don't think God is enough. We've believed the lie that we need something else to satisfy us or provide for us besides God. How do we break it? We break it when we worship something else in addition to God. Uh, Sometimes we think, oh, I really worship God. I just kind of need this over here. Well, when we do that, we are no longer worshiping God uh, because our God does not share. We are really worshiping and orienting ourselves towards our idols. Idols of the day um, that I know I'm prone to, financial security, comfort, control, order, relationships, family, health. We probably could go on and on. And if you want to discover the idols which compete for your worship, uh, answer a couple of questions for yourself. 
think about uh, what does my, how does where does my mind wander when I kind of have that dead space or I'm free to think about anything? What do I get excited about? What do I dream about when I've had a hard day or a hard week? What when my mind kind of daydreams about the future? What do I find myself daydreaming about? I'll tell you one of my daydreams. This is kind of embarrassing. But I used to have this daydream about winning the lottery, <laughs> which is totally ridiculous because I don't even play the lottery. I never have. Uh, but, you know, whenever, like, McDonald's or Safeway would come out with their Monopoly thing, I would play that, and I would have these daydreams about winning those prizes. Okay, does anyone else, can you relate to me? <laughs> all right, thank you. I am not all by myself in this. Yeah, I would have these daydreams. It's like, and then I, I thought, yeah, if, okay, if we won that million dollars, our retirement would be taken care of. Our kid, we could send our kids to college debt-free if I would just win that money. And not only that, I could give much more generously with that money. Yeah, all of these things. And it just revealed to me there was an idol in my heart. And deeper than the idol of a love for money was that love for security and control. I wanted the security that my future was taken care of and the control of that money to be able to be a blessing to other people. So that kind of really revealed an idol in my heart. Okay, then, so what steps can we take to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing is what I just demonstrated for you guys. Identifying the idols in our hearts. Being aware of them. And if you don't know how to do this, a great place to start is thinking about Psalm 139, 23 to 24, where the psalmist says, Search me and know my heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the idols of your heart. He has a, an amazing way of bringing clarity when you ask him to do that. Um, and then think about just kind of voluntarily starving your idols so that they don't have as much control on you. So if your idol is comfort, then make yourself uncomfortable for the benefit of others around you. If your idol is financial security, Give some of that money away. If your idol is control, give up control um, to, some, to someone else. Do your husband, let him control your schedule. Tell him, you know, let him di dictate what your priorities ought to be. Um, that's a way to starve that idol. Um, and then on the positive side, cultivate your relationship with the Lord. Uh, as we continue to cultivate that relationship, we see he is the only one who's worthy and our idols are no match for the Lord. All right, we'll go more quickly through the other ones. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. What is meant by this commandment? Well, like I said earlier, this focuses on how we worship the Lord. Um, it talks about in the verse 5 as you go on in that commandment. It talks about the Lord being a jealous God. He is jealous for his own worship, for how we worship him. Um, and then it also talks about future generations because they're watching us. They see how we worship the Lord. It has an impact on them. Um, the way that we worship the Lord we are to let him tell us how to worship him. We are to let him tell us who we are. 
Making an image in its very nature, it limits God. It, it tr- it's us trying to define and control God. So in our worship, we need to let God tell us who he is and how he's to be worshiped. We're to worship his full character. How did Jesus fulfill this commandment? Well, that Colossians 1.15 was a great verse that we all saw in our study. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, why do we break the commandment? I think we break it because God seemed... God who is God, the living God, right? He seems unpredictable. He seems a bit unknowable. He's just a bit too out there. So we want to bring God down to something that we can get a grasp on. And I think that the images of God that we make in our mind are, can be just as real as any physical image that we might make. Um, so I think that's how we, we try to decide who God is. We come up with our own conception of God. How do we break the commandment? We do it when we create any image, whether it's something physical or it's this picture of God that we have in our mind. I'll just give you a quick example. Um, I think about my children. I want my children to be physically safe. And so I want a God who's going to ensure the physical safety of my God of my children. So I create this image of my, in my head of God who's gentle and caring and wouldn't ever let my children come to physical harm. And I kind of freeze that image and I meditate on it. Well, that is not allowing God to be fully God. It's not allowing him to define who he is. I'm freezing one attribute of God and kind of controlling God so that he'll take care of my children. All right, uh, what steps can we take against this? Well, we need to let God tell us who he is in the Bible. We need to be reading broadly and and not just focusing on one image of God, but reading uh, our whole Bible so that we know all about who God is and how he wants us to worship him. All right, the third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What's meant by the commandment? Again, it has to do with how we worship. Uh, We are to live in such a way that our actions, our words, our thoughts are speaking the truth about who God is and about his character. How did Jesus fulfill this commandment? He always spoke the truth, and his life perfectly reflected God's character, didn't it? Why do we break the commandment? I think we break it because we forget that we are dependent beings. We have been bought with a price, and we now belong to God. And so, therefore, it matters how we reflect him, how we speak about him. How do we break it? Oh, so many different ways, right? I break it, especially in the way that I speak about God when I'm not reflecting him fully. I think about when I give in to my worry and anxiety and I let the worry and anxiety control me and control what words I'm saying and how I'm, I have concerns about the future, is this going to be okay, what are we going to do about this, I am not representing God well. I'm not using my words to reflect him and his character. Uh, what steps can we take? Well, I think we... Um, my, my best antidote when I start going down that stream of worry and talking about all my fears is just to turn to the Lord in prayer. I think prayer can be a great way to remind ourselves that we're dependent um, and we can uh, tell God 
who he is and that we trust him and his character. All right, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What is meant by the commandment? Remember I said that was a blessing um, in the people's relationship with God? Well, it's a blessing for us as well today. It's a physical and a spiritual blessing for us. Um, it's, a, it's saying that God is going to provide for us. We don't need to work continually to provide for ourselves. Um, and then also, spiritually, Christ has provided us with our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4, 9 to 10. Um, Christ has provided that Sabbath rest when he paid the penalty for our sins, that debt that we owed. All right, how did Jesus fulfill the commandment? Well, he trusted in his father's perfect provision while he was on this earth. And then also he provided Sabbath rest for us through his death on the cross. Why do we break the commandment? All sorts of reasons. But some of the biggies are we're afraid God's provision won't be sufficient. And then spiritually, it's hard to accept grace, isn't it? We are always tempted to try and work off our sins. And how do we break it when we just try to provide for ourselves rather than trusting in God's rest for us and taking a break from our continuous work? Um, We do it when we try to pay for our sins. We berate ourselves. We try to do penance for our sins. Um, And then what steps can we take to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Well, we can cultivate gratitude. It reminds reminds us everything we have comes from the Lord. Um, And then I think we do it best when we come together on Sunday. And because Sunday really is the day that we are coming together to celebrate the Sabbath rest we have been provided in Christ. So we come together with the other believers to celebrate that. All right, so when you read the first four commandments from now on, think about your relationship with God and that these are meant to draw you into relationship with God. The first commandment shows us the one with whom we are in relationship. Commandments two and three remind us of how we are to worship this living God. And then the fourth commandment reminds us we are given a great blessing Uh, in our relationship with God, that Sabbath rest. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for these four commandments that you've given that are not just for the Israelites, but are for us today. Thank you, we've had time in our small groups to meditate on them. Uh, And Lord, I pray that this week as we go home, your spirit would be reminding us of them, reminding us of where we're tempted to break them or where we are breaking them, where we need to repent, um, and then how you want us to keep them and what we can do to cooperate with your spirit. And may your spirit be transforming all of our hearts so that we can keep the commandments more and more. In Christ's name, amen.